Hi, I'm Biz. I'm a working parent with a kid and a teen. It's been 10 years since the show began, and a lot has changed on the show and in the world. But by elevating the voices of others, we have learned we are not alone, and we are doing a good job. This is still a show about life after giving life. This is One Bad Mother. This week on One Bad Mother, birth stories are a part of the larger story. I talked to Linda Villarosa about her new book, Under the Skin, which looks at the hidden toll of racism on American lives and the health of our nation. Plus, Biz was alone. This is a check-in. Um, so, we're, we're okay. My check-in is that I have had a genius. <laughs> and I know it was a genius because I you know, was experiencing the amazing one-person celebration that you get when you have a parenting genius and nobody fucking cares. And I thought, you know, who would appreciate this is the One Bad Mother community, so I should definitely True. call it in. And, you know, I couldn't end the time because life, whatever. And some time has passed, and I cannot remember at all what my genius was. It's gone. I don't know. It's, I don't know. So... My check-in is that I, I had a genius. I congratulated myself. And then also just where life is, is that I, I it's gone. I forgot it. It's gone. So, you know, I'm just going to focus on what's in front of me, which is that the um, last member of my household who had COVID uh, in our, you know, wonderful first-time experience is emerging. So we're re-emerging from quarantine. And it's weird. But, you know, it is. It's what it is. It's weird. It's fine. We're all coming back out. Um, you know. So I hope everybody's doing fine. Here's all the geniuses that people have that <laughs> then they completely forget about. So super brain wins again. Okay. Bye, guys. I agree. Here is to all the geniuses we've had that we have forgotten about. This is like, I forget my geniuses every week. I mean, I got to come up with one of these every week. And I forget it all. It's like I've got a, my brain has just started saying, it's just better if you don't remember anything from the day before. That's probably better for you. Well, I think whatever your genius was, wow, it was great. It was so good. I am sitting here in awe of your genius. You are doing an amazing job. I will say I am also doing a slightly amazing job because Stefan was out of town last week and I did it. I did it. You know, it's, it's a, it, I, I don't know if it's supposed to be easier now that the kids are older or what. It wasn't necessarily, <laughs> but we got through it and that is good. They have returned, which is good. What is not good is that they have, they got home and the day after they got home, they're like, oh, the person I was with the entire trip has tested positive for COVID. And so it was like, okay, let's stock up on our home kits and wait for it to happen. And it's happened. So one down three of us to go. And is it weird? Like this, I feel like this speaks to where we are in the world. Is it weird that a larger like thought in my head that comes over that like outweighs the like, oh, you know, we're boosted. We're, we've got everything. I, I'm hoping these are just mild, mild. Everybody just gets like the light, mild cases that lots of people are having. What's at the forefront of my mind is, yes, we got it. Three weeks before school starts, <laughs> we're going to be so golden for going back to school. So everything's fucked up. Uh, so there you go. But we've made it two and a half years without getting it. So our, our time has come. So if you are my sister, you can revel in the fact that, haha, we now have it. Speaking of reveling in things, today we're going to revel in birth stories and the idea that a birth story is part of a larger story that we need to be telling. 
and sharing with each other and listening to in order to improve the treatment of people, especially people of color, in the world of medicine. Please take a moment to remember, if you're friends of the hosts of One Bad Mother, you should assume that when we talk about other moms, we're talking about you. If you are married to the host of One Bad Mother, we definitely are talking about you. Nothing we say constitutes professional parenting advice. Biz and Teresa's children are brilliant, lovely, and exceedingly extraordinary. Nothing said on this podcast about them implies otherwise. This week, I am so excited to be speaking with Linda Villarosa, who's a journalist, author, editor, novelist, and educator, and the author of the new book, Under the Skin, which looks at the hidden toll of racism on American lives and the health of our nation. You know, good old comedy podcast about parenting material. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Linda. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I would like to start by asking you the question we ask all our guests, which is, who lives in your house? I live in Brooklyn with my partner, Jana, our really spoiled cat and dog, Pepper and Cookie, and my two children, our two children come in and out. Okay. I know that there were a lot of paths that led you to writing this book, but I was kind of hoping we could start with a birth story, which in hindsight is such an interesting wording of this experience, giving birth, you know, especially this idea of stories, stories having been used throughout time to share experiences and lessons of the past. And, you know, I also think that birth stories get sort of played up in the media and movies and TV as sort of fun and funny and sentimental, and and they're not. (laughs) They don't tend to be. They really prove to be stories of trauma and resilience and strength, which can be very powerful. And I, I was wondering if you would share your birth story and how it played into the writing of this book. I became pregnant in 1996 with my daughter, Callie. And I was in great shape and great health. I was the health editor of Essence magazine. So I was like a role model for black women and health. So I was trying to do everything right. My physician was my wonderful lesbian friend, doctor friend um, at a really good practice on Park Avenue. So when I went to maybe my third, I I can't remember how pregnant I was, but I was, you know, like in the second (laughs) trimester, I think. And I was told, uh, your baby's not doing well. Your baby is much smaller than we would expect at this age. You have something called inner uterine growth restriction. And it was called retardation, but they changed the name, thank God. And um, so now you have to go to a perinatologist. So now I'm out of the warm comfort of my you know, wonderful physician, and I'm at the perinatologist, the specialist's. And right away, when I went, they started asking me these questions. Do you, you know, what's your diet like? Like, do you eat a lot of, do you drink a lot of soda? Do you drink a lot of alcohol? Do you, what kind of food do you eat? Are you on, you know, the equivalent of like a soul food diet? Are you using drugs? And they went through the drugs. It was like, are you using drugs? Do you smoke pot? Do you use crack cocaine? Crack cocaine? (laughs) Who calls it that? And I'm like, no, I am pregnant, so I'm not doing that. And then I realized that most people with the problem that I had are, that's their situation. And so then, you know, my pregnancy was a little bit, it was a little scary. I was often on bed rest. I remember I had a couch at Essence, so I'd have meetings lying on the couch, so I would be really still. And then finally, my doctor said, just near term, she said, we need to get the baby born. And so we're going to induce her. So now she's a crazy cancer and not a um, Leo, which she should have been um, because she (laughs) was induced. And my doctor induced her smartly right at term. So she wasn't quote unquote preterm, but she still weighed four pounds, 13 ounces. And so she was so tiny people. I remember taking her to work or taking her to friends and there. I was like, do you want to hold the baby? They're like, no, she looked like a little kitten. It was, she was so small. And um, now she's fine. You know, she's like tall, athletic, you know, really personable, wonderful. But 
I always wondered about why was I a person who had this problem? Why did I have this issue in pregnancy? Now, even for my book, there were like four women who I interviewed about other things who told me they had the same thing. And even when I've now thought of it and looked into the things that happen to black women, either inside the medical system or in society in general, I think, is there something about a kind of toxic stress that comes from being a black person in America, particularly a black person that lives and has long lived in predominantly white spaces that is bad for my, that was bad for my body and perhaps bad for my baby. Yeah. So a few years earlier, I was a fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health. I was a journalism fellow. And my professor, Dr. Blinden, brought me this study. He was like really enthusiastic. He's like, oh, I want to show you the study that's in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was about educated black parents. And it showed that educated black parents quite a bit more often have babies of low birth weight. And so that was at the time and even now, and definitely before that, it was the idea that only people who were really poor and or using drugs and all the things that I was accused of are the ones that have low birth weight babies. So when he showed me that, I was surprised. I didn't believe it. And I remember asking him, I was really giving him a hard time then because I was like, wait, why did you bring me this? Now, what's the solution? What's the answer? And he said, I, they started speaking in the we terms. We don't know, but we think it has something to do with stress. I remember hearing stress, but at the time, stress was thought of as I'm stressed out or I just need a bubble bath or I need some me time. And, you know, now there's this thing called toxic stress, which is different. And I learned about it when I was writing about maternal and infant mortality in 2018 for the New York Times Magazine. And I interviewed Dr. Arlene Geronimus, who coined the term weathering. And in order to explain higher levels of infant mortality in Black birthing people, she coined this term. And she found that at the beginning of her career, she was really, really criticized because people thought she was pro-teen pregnancy. But what she found was that actually infant mortality isn't a problem in Black teenagers as much as it is a problem of Black women who are a bit older. And so that's how she came up with the idea that she's since really refined of weathering. And that is the toll of being Black, especially a woman, in America and the effect it has, and it creates a kind of accelerated aging. So each time something bad happens to you that is called, you know, racist, (laughs) your heart rate goes up. Some racist thing happens, whether it's a microaggression Something like, oh, you know, I I move away from you in the elevator or you walk into a room and everyone, you know, thinks you're stupid or you get discriminated against in housing by the police or in employment. But each time that happens, then something happens in your body physiologically. So your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure rises, your cortisol levels, your stress hormones rise, and which is completely normal in the occasional, but if it's happening time after time, which is much, you know, about the lived experience of being marginalized or discriminated against in our society, then it's bad for your body. And it creates a higher, what's called an allostatic load. And over time, Dr. Geronimus and others believe it creates a kind of accelerated aging. And then it comes out, you see it during birth or and pregnancy. And I, when I read about this about, you know, like I read this theory, I interviewed her for like two hours the first time. And I was like, okay, just say it one more time. What happens? Why'd you call it weathering? You know, all this stuff. And, and I really believe, and before when she was being criticized, you know, that was earlier in her career. Now she's has her own book. She's writing a book. It's coming out in about eight months. She's, we're paying much more attention to people like her. Well, actually, I just kind of want to derail for a second because I got to assume I mean, how is the medical community responding to this idea, this concept? I mean, to me, historically, this is the sort of thing that would be dismissed pretty quickly because a lot of it has to do with being a woman and have, and then on top of that, the racial bias in a theory like this, you know, having to confront that. Are people really paying attention in the areas that that matter? (laughs) People are paying attention now because all the other explanations have been dismissed. The first explanation was genetic. 
that, oh, black um, birthing people have higher levels of infant and maternal mortality because of something wrong with the body. But then that was proven not true. And I love the experiment of the sort of research that proved that untrue. It was about 20 years ago by these two really dogged scientists from Chicago. So they looked at something like 10,000 birth certificates of people in four groups. So it's white American women, mm-hmm. white immigrants from Europe, black American women, and black immigrants from the poorest countries of Africa and the Caribbean. So the three groups, everybody but the black American women had normal birth babies. You know, they were just normal birth size by and large. Yeah. But black women Black American women had much higher levels of low birth weight babies. So then they looked at the next generation of birth certificates where you know, the, you know, female people, and they looked at their, their babies. So then in the next generation, this is only one generation, something like in 25 years, the next generation, two groups were the same. So the white women still had normal sized babies. The white immigrant women had normal sized babies, maybe slightly bigger, which is translates into healthier. And right. then the black American women still had small babies, but now the immigrant women's mm. children, you know, like their grandchildren were smaller and they matched the African American babies. And the reason I got so interested in this research was because I read a quote by one of the researchers and, you know, the researchers don't say anything like really, you know, radical, yeah. but this quote was, there's something about being black that's bad for mother's body and her baby. And I'm like, why would they say that? You know, that's not the usual. Usually they're wonk, wonk, science speak. And so (laughs) that's why I got interested in that research. And I thought, that's not genetic. I was going to say, I've got it. I have an answer. (laughs) I have a proposed answer to that question. Why is it so bad? Which reminds me of another study you talk about in the book, the study of this idea of black pain and black joy. And I first heard you on The Takeaway, that show, which I listen to every day. I love that show. But I was listening to you talk with her about a study done recently. It was like 2016, I think, fairly recently about that was given to medical students studying sort of the bias or this notion that black people do not experience pain the same way white people do. I'm listening to this in the car. I'm driving in the car, going to pick my mother up. And the question is, a black person gets their hand slammed in a car door and a white person gets their hand slammed in a car door. Who feels more pain? And I, as a person who likes to be graded, and want to get an A on everything, began to yell at the radio, both! And then <laughs> they both do! And then you come out and tell us that that is not how most pe- how many people answered, and I almost swerved off the road. And then I had to tell that story to everybody I saw that day. And my mother, who also likes being an A student, was like, both! And I said, no, you're wrong! Uh, so, I mean, we were right but wrong. So talk to me about those studies as well. That study, it was, yes, from 2016 at the University of Virginia, and it looked at something like 222 white medical students, and it asked them to, you know, questions about black people versus white people, and one of them was pain. The other thing was like thin skin. Yeah, thin skin. Skin thickness. (laughs) And another thing was like the number of nerve endings people had. And something like 40% of medical students, um, interns or residents answered one of those questions incorrectly, but one of the, you know, really big bad ones like the pain. Yeah. And what's alarming about that is the genesis of that mythology goes back to slavery. Oh, it goes and way goes all back. all the way back when those kinds of myths were used to justify enslavement by Southern scientists and physicians who were often enslavers themselves. And so if that goes back 400 years, that medical students who are not even doctors yet, they're the doctors to be, still believe it, that's alarming. And here's 
what happened about two weeks ago. So I was like, blah, 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 talking about that on the radio, like you heard. <laughs> so I get this really evil email from this oh. person who said, my son was one of those medical students who answered the questions incorrectly. And, you know, how could you do that? That was really unfair. It really hurt his feelings. And what? now, and then he's like, now he's gone on to be a wonderful practicing doctor. And at first, okay, I did think, oh my God. Uh, he's like, stop talking about that study. And then I was like, oh my God, I, this poor you didn't man call and his son, he's so out. proud of him. And then right. I was like, oh, shut up. He yeah. probably learned a good a lesson. Good he's lesson. probably a better doctor. doctor. Now that he realized his blind spot. Yeah, I, A, that is a weird email to get. And I, you are very kind. And I am also, we try to practice on the show of being in other people's shoes and no one's doing it at you and that sort of thing. But this, yes, yes, my, I'm very proud of my child. And how dare you? But you weren't calling anybody out by name. <laughs> I would like to say it was a blind study. But I'm with you. I What a wonderful, I mean, it's a horrible lesson to learn. But if there's learning, that is a good thing always. Because you're right. Those notions go back to slave. They go back even further with just considering people who were poor, uneducated. I mean, it was always about wealthy, not educated, because they didn't want women educated, but (laughs) wealthy women being, wealthy white women having this bar of health and expectations. And anybody of any other class, race, definitely being treated very differently, but especially women of color well, people of color. I mean, you talk about the Tuskegee experiments, but we've also touched on, and you touch on, that's just one of many. But I, I want to go back to this notion of pain and and how detrimental that could be and how that falls into the stress that you were talking about. It was interesting because someone said to me, had looked at that study and was thinking about what I was, how I was explaining it. And they said, oh, but maybe that's a reason why fewer black people are addicted to opioids. And I was like, wait, because they don't get proper pain management? That is cruel. (laughs) I don't think there's any cause and effect between those two. It's just me. And it does. I think if you, if you see healthcare as a place of right. pain, then you avoid it. You avoid going into healthcare. You know, you avoid going into the system, even when you legitimately should, if you're a person who's been harmed. And I write a lot about, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis study of the past, and also Henrietta Lacks, whose st- cells were taken and used yeah. for profit without her knowledge. And the, the Rell sisters, sisters who, of Alabama. Right. In 1973, were sterilized without their consent or their parents' um, consent or even knowledge. And people are like, oh my God, no wonder black people stay out of the healthcare system. I was like, well, that isn't really the only reason that happened. That happened in the past. It could be what happened to you yeah. yesterday. It could be how your family members was treated, how your mother, your sister, your cousin. That's what keeps people being, as they call it, medically hesitant. And I get that. Well, get and that it. it's also a hindrance for receiving mental health care. You know, I, sorry, I have this very dark sense of humor and I giggle at things that most people are like, why are you giggling? It's not funny. But it, it hits me as so insanely stupid that I'm like, of course, that's ridiculous. It's the screen door in the submarine. I'm going to laugh at that as I drown. But the idea that like, it's a new thing that people are like, wait, we need more representation in mental health. Because It's like women not wanting to go to male doctors, people of color not wanting to go to white male doctors, people wanting a therapist that reflects them, and that this sudden realization that there is this huge shortage of that, you know, makes me go, we're drowning. We're drowning in the submarine. You shouldn't have put that screen door in here. I guess that leads me to sort of where we go next from the work that you've done. Where are we going and how can we help? One of the reasons I wrote the book was to lift up the stories of people. So the people's narratives become a kind of evidence. So you know me, I'm like super nerdy. You read my book. I'm like, here's a study, here's this, here's here's that. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm really geeked out with that. But also people's narratives, their own storytelling and, you know, it's confirmational for people, but it also piles up into another kind of yeah. evidence. One of the things I noted was when my book got reviewed by the New York Times book review, I'm just going to brag and say that it was on the cover of the it book was. review. Yeah, and you should brag. <laughs> I was so happy about that. But I noticed in the review, there was the, uh, the re- writer put her own birth story, which was near yeah. tragic. In a book review, there's a black woman who said uh, she read my 2018 yeah. New York Times Magazine cover story herself, tried to do everything right, but ended up in a very hospitalized situation at the birth of her child. And was and she still is traumatized by it and was herself. herself yeah, of course. It. And this is in a book review. People don't usually yeah. digress into a long <laughs> personal story, but I appreciated it a lot. And I thought it was really moving and telling that, you know, she's telling the story in the book review. And so one of the things I tried to do was lift up the stories of individuals, but also point to the work of people who are trying to make yeah. a difference. And I think medical students are really trying to make a difference. They're much more radical than they used to be. Many people who are in medical school now were radicalized by the Black Lives Matter movement because that was happening when they were in high school or undergraduates in college. So now they've taken a more activist view into medical education. So they're saying, okay, all these old myths that are in our medical training and education, we don't want, we don't want that. We don't want to be that kind of doctor. The bad thing is often they are doing it at the same time that they're trying to get through medical school. So you've got these organizations of students educating other students. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, while going to medical school. But I think that's really good that they are trying to become a new generation of doctors, nurses, midwives, health policy people. I think also I try to lift up the work of what I call community health workers. But in America might be called a patient navigator. It might be called a doula. It might be called, you know, just an activist or a partner in health, something like that. Other countries that have much worse healthcare systems than us with a lot less money use these kinds of people who are sort of like lay people who connect the patient with the hospital system or the technology. We don't um, use them as often because we rely so heavily on our, you know, very medicalized, very high tech healthcare system that we spend so much money on. And, but when I remember I was in Ethiopia and Zambia and in each place I was following around community health workers. And I'm thinking, you know, this place where I am with this really wonderful person doing this on the ground healthcare looks like Mississippi where my ancestors are from. And what is the difference? Why are we not using community health workers, especially in rural areas where there's a lack of transportation as there is in rural Africa and other places, India and South America and places like that. Um, The women I followed were riding bicycles to places and it's like good. Or the people in my stories are often the person with a car. They're the person who's, I'm taking you to the health clinic to get your HIV AIDS medication, or I'm driving you to the hospital to have your baby. And so we need to think more like low tech solutions to problems that don't need to be so expensive. But that goes right back into one of the issues of our system is the idea that we, the whoever the we is, knows best. The mystery <laughs> of the system. I mean, even one of the things you you say repeatedly in the book, and I've heard you say on the show with people that you've talked to, I am educated. I do know how to navigate the system. I did have all of these things. I did the best. I, you know, like, and I still found myself in these situations. I had, with all the privilege of all of that insight, we still find ourselves having to navigate. And then you be, you begin to think, it's not easy to file insurance. It's not easy to get a therapist. It's not, e- these aren't easily accessible. And I feel like, there is a sense of threat with healthcare navigators, doulas, this sort of thing to the system. One of the stories you tell is of a woman who's like, <laughs> where the two nurses looked at each other and were like, you ask a lot of questions, don't you? Right? And like, and when she, While she's having while a difficult she's having birth. A- so that is super rude. And the other thing that they did was they kept asking her how many children ah! she had, these nurses. 
And so she's saying, okay, for the third time, I've yeah. had two children and then I had yeah. a miscarriage. I had a stillbirth. And then they say, the second thing is, when was the demise? And it's like, what? She had a stillbirth, which traumatic. is traumatic. She named the baby. She almost died. Every time they said demise yeah. to her, I could see her weathering. Just you could see her weathering. <laughs> yes, I could, she was weathering. She right just there. was aging by the second. <laughs> but it was the doula yeah. who said, please yeah. stop asking that. It's in the chart. Yeah. Look at the chart. Stop asking the same question over and over that is harming your yeah. patient. And I really appreciated that. I was, and also during that birth, I remember that every single person in the room was staring at the machine yeah. the poor mother was yeah. hooked up to. And then it was showing the baby's heart rate and showing her own heart rate, except the yeah. doula her. was looking at her. And I appreciated that. It's like, somebody's got to pay attention to this woman. Yeah. She's not just a body. Yeah. And I loved that. I loved that that doula was in the room. And certainly, you know, I think a lot about what happened in California. In the state of California... There were the same kind of statistics around maternal mortality and infant mortality as in the rest of the country, including, you know, the numbers were rising and including that black women were three to four times more likely to die or almost die related to childbirth. So what they did was they put all hands on deck in the state. So in the hospitals, they improved the, the protocols. And it used to be that if there was an emergency C-section or a hemorrhage, Everybody was like running around. Oh my God, what do we do? Yeah. Help. We don't have everything all in one place. We don't have a, a uniform set of instructions. So they changed that and they had the yeah. uniform set of instructions under C-section and under hemorrhage. And they had all the tools that you need in those emergency moments. So they looked at it between, I think it was 2006 and 2013. And the number of birthing people who passed away or almost did as a, you know, or had some terrible outcome dropped by 55%. It was like so great. Just from putting However, a list together. <laughs> just by putting the list and putting the tools together in the hospital. But what uh, didn't change was the racial health disparity because it mostly helped white women and to some extent Latinx women. So what they did was now in the state of California, anyone who works with a birthing person or pregnant person has to go through some kind of anti-racism training by law. It's the best. And that is really good. I think that that is a model and it's a model for other states. The state of Louisiana, when they were looking at their maternal mortality, they looked at what happened in California and said, we're not going to make that mistake. And right away put the anti-racism training wow. and that kind of that lens on what they were doing to improve the numbers. Wow. That's, yay. I'm so glad I live in California. <laughs> yes, California doesn't get enough. No, we did. We should. We should. <laughs> we are trying really hard. My kids are always like, "But we live in California, so are we okay?" I'm like, "For the time being, we are." Except for those whole wildfire things. Well, and stuff, the but wildfire, okay. uh, but we're you know we're still trying to work on that too. But as, as a Alabama native, it is night and day at times. I could talk to you for 18 more hours and get super nerdy about studies, but I won't. I want to thank you for, A, joining me on the show, but mostly I want to thank you for writing this book because it is about elevating these voices and the power of the book is evident in the book review. You know, it, it, we should be inspired to be sharing our stories and normalizing that. I, I think it's okay to normalize that something is wrong in the sense of looking at it, not normalizing that it's okay to be wrong. But, you know, the more that we say, this was a problem, or I had a doctor do this, or my birth went this way, and I, I this is a good thing in the long run. And, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been kind of like a beach read. It's been fun. Yeah, I like to make <laughs> these things beach ready for people. <laughs> Let's all go out and have a pina colada. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take you up on that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. One Bad Mother is supported in part by BetterHelp. 
BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. When you've got kids in your house, no matter how old they are, having a place to put that is incredibly helpful and needed. Sometimes we need more than taking power naps and a night out with friends. Sometimes we need therapy. Look, BetterHelp Online Therapy is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash BadMother. That's BetterHelp.com slash BadMother. Hey, you know what it's time for this week's Genius and Fails. This is the part of the show where we share our genius moment of the week, as well as our failures, and feel better about ourselves by hearing yours. You can share some of your own by calling 206-350-9485. That's 206-350-9485. Genius me, me. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I saw what you did. Oh, my God. I'm paying attention. Wow. You, Mom, are a genius. Oh, my God. That's fucking genius. Okay. I did it. I got through the week without Stefan, and that was right at the tail end of my week with my dad, who had been in the hospital. So it was like, boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. I kept it super easy with a lot of television And a lot of like, is it food on a plate? It's dinner. So that is how I got through it. (laughs) Hey, One Bad Mother, have I got the product for you. Here's a genius. Do you have a toddler or anyone in your family that slams doors? Well, pool noodles. Let me (laughs) tell you about these pool noodles, man. They're cheap. You You cut it to the however long you want it to be. You slice the edge of it so that it opens up like the letter C. Stick it on a door where the children can't reach it. No more slammed doors. No more doors that confine or that hold them back. Now, everyone can open doors. There's no more slammed doors. No more shut doors. Just in case. So the kids don't get up to no good. You know what? Play a prank on your husband. Put a pool noodle on the door. See if he'll be pooping with that door shut for a long time. Anyway, there's my genius. My my toddler likes to slam doors and then not be able to open the handles. So pool mm. noodles, pool noodles have been a lifesaver. Hope you're all having a wonderful day. You're doing a fantastic job, and holy hell, I am too. Have a good one. Bye. Yeah, you are. Pool noodles. Who knew? One Bad Mother listeners knew. This is the first time I think we've had the call where somebody has used the pool noodle as a door slam stopper. But we've also, I can see this also being used very easily for that problem of like, your child's just going down to nap. The air conditioning kicks in or something happens and it slams the door. So that is helpful. Also, does anybody remember the genius of putting the pool noodles along the bottom of the couch so that when you're playing, toys don't roll under the couch? That is another really good pool noodle use. And of course, they make great lightsabers. Uh, So you are doing an amazing job. Stock up on those pool noodles now that summer's over. You're doing amazing. Failures. Fail, fail, fail. You suck. Okay, I have mentioned that, you know, my fails seem to fall into this pattern of identifying them and then doing nothing about it. And then (laughs) then it's still being a problem. I took that pottery class around Christmas, winter. That was wonderful. If you get clay, you know, all over your clothes, don't put that in the washing machine. That's not good for the washing machine. So I put it on top of the wash so that I could hose them off outside and then wash them. And I'm pretty sure I shared a fail in which they had been sitting there for a while. And I just wanted to let everybody know that they're still sitting there, that it's been six months. And there is a bag with clothes in it that are covered in clay. And I have to, what's worse is I have to keep reminding Stefan, don't wash them, (laughs) don't wash them. They've got clay on them and they'll ruin the washing. Don't, 
Watch them. So look at me. Letting it lie forever. <laughs> Hi, um, this is a fail. I put a cup of mac and cheese in the, like, just the instant mac and cheese in the microwave. And then I took it out, and then I put in my own food. And I had poured the cheese into the instant cup. And then I was heating my food. I was recording some Instagram stories. And then I walked back over, and I had not stirred the cheese. And when I did stir it, it was just gross and disgusting. Um, so in case you're wondering, you can, in fact, still mess up the microwavable instant mac and cheese. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for letting us know. This was <laughs> very important. It was just added to the list of things that you weren't sure you could fuck up. But now that has been confirmed. You can fuck that. You can also fuck up oatmeal in the microwave. Uh, you can fuck up pasta, just in general. Just walking away from the pot of boiling water and not returning. Like getting distracted. And then that's disgusting. But the real question is, do you still serve it? And I would say in a majority of those cases, the answer is yes. Because, oh well, you are doing a horrible job making instant mac and cheese. Ah, take away your chef's license. Do you have a chef's license? Well, you're doing a horrible job. You are the greatest mom I've ever known. I love you, I love you. When I have a problem, Hi everyone, I'm Anna McLeod. And I'm Alexis B. Preston. And we host a show called Comfort Creatures, the show for every animal lover, be it a creature of scales, six legs, fur, feathers, or fiction. Comfort Creatures is a show for people who prefer their friends to have paws instead of hands. Unless they are raccoon hands, that is okay. That is absolutely okay, yeah. Yes. Every Thursday, we will be talking to guests about their pets, learning about pets in history, art, and even fiction. Plus, we'll discover differences between pet ownership across the pond. It's going to be a hoot on Maximum Fun. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Dr. Sydney McElroy. That, that is true. It's important in this context because we host a medical history podcast called Sawbones. Oh, I thought we were going to. We should have worked on that. Sawbones. Sawbones isn't afraid to ask the hard-hitting questions. Like, are vaccines as safe and reliable as they want us to believe? Yes. Do I have to get a flu shot? Yes. Uh, okay. Is science a miracle? No. We have a lot of great history for you and a lot of laughs. And sometimes the history is so bad that there's no laughs, but... You'll learn something, you'll feel something. And it's always Sawbones. That's right. Every week on MaximumFun.org. All right, everybody, it is time to listen to a mom have a breakdown. Hey, Biz, this is just a rant, um, and it's highly unscripted, so <laughs> bear with me here. I'm just... I, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, a little over two-and-a-half, so going into the pandemic, she was like, I think I got through my fourth trimester, which thank God for that. But I don't know. This just, it, so many of my friends, I don't understand how this happens. So many of my friends go, hey, I have, all, all my friends are moms. All my friends are having kids. And for me, it's like the opposite problem. And I never hear people get to complain about this, but none of my friends are moms and none of my friends have kids. And it's like, I, I love my friends that I do have, but it's, it's been a very frustrating time because <laughs> I, you just, you want someone to be able to relate to like, hey, I don't think I can make this gathering because it's happening at, at, you know, two o'clock, which is right in the middle of my kid's nap time. And you don't want to see her when she has a nap time or, um, <laughs> no, I can't go out short notice because I need to hire a babysitter or no, I can't just, just uh shoot, I had another good example, but I just forgot it. It's <laughs> it's just frustrating. You know, you want that parent solidarity and oh big hug. And I do love this kid and I love giving her big hug. Come on, baby. <laughs> sure, I know, because I was doing dishes. But um 
gosh, I sure do wish I had some other moms who were my friends or that my friends were moms. And, oh, it's lonely. I just wanted to – just wanted to, you're silly. I just wanted to rant about that. All right. Well, thank you. You are doing such a good job. You are doing such a good job all over the place. And that is a really fair rant. I am part of team no one had kids when I had kids. And most of my friends, I've shared a lot, most of my friends still don't have kids, don't want kids. My sister doesn't want kids. You know what I mean? Like we're that situation can really up the isolation game and it can (laughs) I remember I used to feel like is it me am I the one who's making this really difficult should I be cooler or like more (laughs) more laid back with my baby and I don't know that look I am a normal person in the world I can stay up till three o'clock in the morning wondering about that question and how that has somehow led me to wherever I am that I am unsatisfied about But I don't think so. I think when you have a kid in your house, it does change how you feel about your level of comfort and enjoyment out in the world, right? Like you said in passing, you don't want to see my kid when they have a nap. You don't either. You don't want to see that either. When you take a kid out like that, your brain starts to kind of go through this like, Q&A of itself of like, okay, if I do it, like, I really want to see my friends, but will I feel filled, like emotionally by my friends, if I am also stressing out about my kid throwing a fork across the restaurant, or, you know, you sit down with a baby at the restaurant, and suddenly you're like shoving everything. It's like the like the fastest game of chess. Push the salt and pepper, push the water. Why does the waitress put the water right in front of the baby? Like, <laughs> you're just shoving everything to try, it, napkin on the floor. It's all kind of chaos. And look, some people are really good at that, and it does fill them up. Some people have babies that just love being out. They're like super mellow and relaxed. Like they're not, it's not an issue. And then there's the rest of us who aren't quite sure if we're ready to go out in the world with our kids and find that to be rewarding or relaxing. Okay. So it's a really normal feeling that you're feeling. And it is hard. And it's, I mean, it's even hard if you've got mom friends, like, you know, because I remember my first time doing a play date with a mom friend and like at the park and pretty much, pretty much, I I think like any age under let's just say 18, those kids are going to wander off in totally different directions. You will never have a full, I never had a full conversation. But what you wanted to do was find the other mom who was fine having these weird conversations across the entire playground, right? Like you would circle, you'd be like, hey, how's, you know, that art project that you're working on? Don't you love, I'm going to pretend like we're all talking about art. How's that art project that you've been working on? Toddler takes off in a different direction. Your toddler takes off in a different direction. Somehow you circle back past each other at the swings and the other one's like, it's going really well. I've had a chance to like really get back in touch with my finger painting. And you're like, oh, that is so good. I used to love, and then you're gone again, right? <laughs> and that, that is kind of how that was. And so there is no perfect situation, but I will say the isolation is real. The uncertainty of how cool Am I supposed to be in these situations or are my friends the ones who are being really unrealistic about my capabilities at this time? It's all a mess. And I'm, I, it's just real. I'm just here to tell you that it's really real. And I hope that all of us can learn to be better friends to people with kids in their house by listening to your rant. So thanks for sharing that rant. 
you're doing a really good job. That is one cute sounding kid. Gosh, you're doing a good job. Everybody, you are all doing a good job. I know this is a comedy podcast about parenting, but 10 years in, I think having used humor as a way to deal with and cope with difficult, hard, frustrating, all of it, all the situations that we find ourselves in coping with all the time allows us to look at some of the issues that exist and have existed for a long time that make being a parent in the world really hard and and not just impossible, but in many cases, life-threatening. And so I feel it is part of our larger discussion in learning how to be a self and finding out what it means to be a self again, to not only start listening to ourselves and what we're trying to say to ourselves, but listening to others and what their experiences are like, because we have to have each other's backs, (laughs) all of the backs. It's all connected. It's all connected. How others are treated will come full circle for us one day, everybody. So we need to be listening and advocating for and standing up for each other all the time. It's no different than the notion of we don't know what someone else is going through when we run into them at the store or a kid is melting down at Target or somebody's crying in the car at Target or any of the other thousands of things that happen at Target involving parents. So let's go out and be really kind to each other. And just as important, be really kind to ourselves. You are all doing such an amazing job. This is hard. It can also be really wonderful. Let's just remember that both get to exist at the same time. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. I got to low down mama blues. I got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. You know that's right. We'd like to thank Max Fun, our producer, Gabe Mara, our husbands, Stephen Lawrence and Jesse Thorne, our perfect children who provide us with inspiration to say all these horrible things, and of course, you, our listeners. To find out more about the songs you heard on today's podcast and more about the show, please go to MaximumFun.org slash OneBadMother. For information about live shows, our book, and press, please check out OneBadMotherPodcast.com. One Bad Mother is a member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. To support the show, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Well, daddy, baby, bustin' by, not low down mama blues. Oh, said daddy, baby, bustin' by, not low down mama blues. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.